Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Fortales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at VigorBranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Fortales a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Hey everyone, this morning I have the distinct pleasure of talking with my friend Adina Bayo. She is the founder at Her own companies, of which there are many, we're going to unpack all of them and all the efforts that Adina has been doing over the years. Uh, Before we jump in, Adina, say hello and uh, give a little bit of backstory. Hi, Joseph, my good new friend I just met with his beautiful new baby. Uh, My (laughs) name is Adina Bio. I am founder and CEO of Adina Bio and Companies. And all that means is that we own eight restaurants. We own Urban Vegans. We own Four IHOPs, we own three cornbread, which is our own signature restaurants, by the way, except for the IHOP. I wouldn't take credit for that. <laughs> uh, we have real estate in affordable housing. Um, I believe, fundamentally believe housing is a right. And I'm here as a, as a conduit, if I was to really say my purpose on this earth as a conduit, and I'm just... Grateful to be here with Joseph and just kind of get to know you a little bit. That's all. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. So you scratch the surface. Um, you're aware of many hats from entrepreneur to restaurant owner, landlord, developer, franchisee. Um, you have a very uh, notable portfolio of uh, real estate. Um you're self-described as a one-woman economic engine for the township of Irvington, which is in New Jersey, correct? Yes. yes. Yep. Great. So uh, to say that you're busy, pretty much an understatement. Um, what does the average day in Adina's life look like? Uh, she's juggling. She's juggling <laughs> a lot of balls. <laughs> it's like a circus, huh? <laughs> yes. To say the least. Uh, I mean, I mean that in a, in a good way. But I think for me, I I wake up 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning on average. And the first thing I do, I really work out. I'm an avid, like I enjoy working out and I enjoy like doing hard shit. Like I am that person that's in the gym for two hours and I'm ready to just start my day. So I usually, after I work out, I meditate. Good meditation is always a good thing because to bring the focus back into your intention, because I believe in intention. I think that we live in a world full of egos, right? And you have to work so hard to not fall victim to your ego, right? Mm -hmm. So I meditate just to bring intentionality back to my purpose of helping people and having people see their highest potential. If I can accomplish that in any given day, I'm, I'm fine, right? So, you know, then I run through emails. I run through a bunch of emails, you know, because when you're CEO of a company, everyone has to CC you on everything. That's right. I'm like, did you really need to CC me on good morning, everyone? (laughs) 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 So everyone has to CC you on everything. So I go through those bunch of email filter out and I believe in to-do lists. 
I believe in jotting down three things I want to get accomplished this day that I'm above ground. Because like Beyonce said, every day above ground is a blessing, right? So if, if today was my last day here, what did I want to get accomplished? And one mm. thing that's always on that list is saying I love you to my kids and my significant other and spreading that joy. And then I dive into the day. You know, I have two director of operations that see the concepts. I meet with them either through phone, Zoom, and we kind of strategize for the day. And I have a director of um, development on the real estate side. I meet with him, kind of get his margin orders. And then I have my physical to-do list of things I must touch daily. So I do that. And usually my kids are up at six in the morning, drop them off and pick them up around six. When they go to bed, I'm responding to my last email around eight thirty, nine o'clock. And it's the end of the day for me. Wow. Yeah. So you go to bed at nine? A good, a good night for me is nine thirty, ten o'clock. Okay. And then you're up at three, four, three, four. Yeah. Ooh, man, I need to get that schedule. The the amount of work you can get done, apparently. Um, I'll get back to it. I promise. So your your person's personal story is very fascinating as well. So um, as an eight-year-old girl, you escaped a war-torn country in Liberia. Yeah. Um, that experience probably taught you a lot of valuable lessons uh, in business and commerce and uh, a lot of other things about life. How, how did you turn what many could easily use as a, a reason to not succeed? Um, how did you turn that into the impetus to become uh, such a prominent figure and a role model? I think the short answer to that is that um, purpose and my grandmother. I think that people think, people talk about luck all the time. You're so lucky. Oftentimes, I am the underdog. I guarantee you, in most of my transactions, I am the underdog. Because people always look at me as, she can't do this. She's not capable. And it's those doubts and things like that that fills me. Because there's nothing like coming from underdog status and meeting your goals. You know, escaping civil war at eight years old and watching my grandmother this powerful woman in Africa that had a whole empire. She had farms, she had a restaurant, she had real estate, she had a bakery and leaving everything behind and going off to another country to be a refugees in another country and seeing the dignified way she transitioned that, looking at adversity as a step stool. I learned so much from her seeing that and she's telling me at the end of the day, as long as you have your life, that's all you need. You can lose everything, everything. Yeah. As long as you have health and life, you can easily re rebuild those things. And she did that. She came to America. We eventually um, went to Sierra Leone. I came to the United States. She followed suit as well. And my grandmother came here and live, you know, through us, through me. She poured a lot of wisdom into me. She explained a lot of business concept to me as I was starting my business. And one of the things that she really, really poured into me was, you have to work hard. She will always say to me, 
Are you working hard? What are you doing with this opportunity? She just was a woman that didn't believe in excuses. If you came to my grandmother with some BS excuse, she's not having it. She's going to grill you. She's going to question you about your part, you playing into it. And she always put it back on the onus on you. Mm-hmm. She said, when something is going wrong, what part of it that you're playing? It's so easy to say, they doing this to me. This is happening to me. Woe is me. What part of it that you're playing? And I think it, those lessons are the reason I'm sitting here today across uh, from you, because I fundamentally do believe that when you are hardworking, I, I, don't, I don't think you can fail. <laughs> I think talent is one thing, but being able to execute and be able to work on those talented skills is another thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think we, ha- we have a stigma with, with underdogs that they are, um, that it's a bad thing. Yeah. I, I would any day of the week rather be an underdog than the leader. And mm-hmm. for one kind of quippy reason, Tell uh, me why. the underdog keeps you looking ahead. The leader makes you look back. You always have to be looking over your shoulder as a leader. You always have to be looking to see who's coming up on you. You always have to be uh, aware or um, uh, wor- worrisome about the underdog who's going to overperform. Right. Um, and so I-, I would rather be the underdog because it keeps you looking where you should, which is ahead. You should be looking upward and onward and what's next. And underdogs are more um, more apt to take risks that leaders won't take because, um, you know, the, the, the leading brand or the leader, the human leader or whatever you, they're not going to take the risk because they know it could risk their leadership, their number one status. That's right. So they're more risk averse by a very nature. Whereas underdogs, they'll take the paths less traveled. Yeah. They'll do the things that are different, or at least they should. That's right. Um, cause if, if an underdog brings the same game to a leader, they're going to lose. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would rather be an underdog. I, actually, I would I would see it almost as a failure to be number one, um, yeah. because yeah. <laughs> you know you're just waiting. It's a waiting game. You're gonna be overtaken, and right because uh, someone is always coming for you, always that's coming right. for you. But but what I do know is that when you're underdog, you know, and I say this, you know, people are always rooting for you. But yeah. understand, as much people are rooting for you. There's just as equal people that are not rooting for you. It's just a matter of who you're focusing on. They're rooting against you. A- like, against you. Even right. worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I said to people all the time, there's always someone rooting for you and there's always someone rooting against you. The difference yep. is who is your focus and whoever you're focused on is who's going to win. That's right. That's a hundred percent. I love that. So you've, you've taken this, this rooting mentality, um, and this idea of hard work, um, into the community. And you're, you're a lot of the work that you do outside of the restaurant industry, um, specifically is supporting the community. So your yeah. franchises are located. Um, that's a core part of the business strategy, but then you, you expand out. So your commitment to the community has been huge. Where does that come from? And and what are some of the high points of your community efforts? Like, what are the things that you're, I hate to use the word pride in this moment, but that you're proudest of? Yeah, I think 
the reason I think I'm so community oriented was I tell you why. When I first came into this country, I was like 12 years old. Um, but when the Civil War started in my country, the last classroom I was in, I think was probably the first grade. So I had a deep interruption of my education from like the first, second grade, all the way. So I come to this country and when I went to Sierra Leone, it was very spotty. It was very spotty. So when I came to this country, I was like 12 years old. So where do you put a 12 year old in a seventh grade? I was put in the seventh grade with about second grade education or first grade education. Oh, wow. I knew nothing. And I think it was like two months into it, my teacher, Ms. Brooke, recognized something. She recognized that I would memorize things a lot. So, but if it was off memorization, I didn't know it. So one day she said to me, she said, Adina, can you stay for me after class? I got to ask you something. And I was so scared. I think I, I, think I was going to pee my pants. <laughs> and I, she came and she said, I'm going to put something on the board and I just need you to tell me what it is or pronounce it. And she put it on the board and I didn't know it. A couple of letters and I did not know it. And she said to me, don't worry. She said, i tell you what, you're going to know these words. And she said, you know how? I make, I make a deal with you. If you come every day an hour before school, I will meet you here and I will tutor you. You know, and every time I say this story, like it brings tears to my eyes. And we did that for a good seventh grade, eighth grade. And she started tutoring me from like pre-K books. Like literally took me through the concept of pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And just kind of brought me up as if you were teaching like a, a child. And my confidence grew. And me as a person, like, you know, just really got fell in love with like school. It wasn't this, it wasn't this nightmare thing anymore for me. And when I graduated eighth grade, she reached out to a couple of schools to find out who in the high schools that she know that can do the same thing for me. And she reached out to a good friend of her that was teaching Miss Jackson at Weekwood High School that was like by two buses away from my house. And she said, this is going to be hard for you, but you're going to have to catch these buses and go meet with her because she is going to help you and do the same thing that I did for you. Wow. And I met Miss Jackson, I want to say in December of my high school year. And we did that every day in high school. Miss Jackson would come 45 minutes. She would meet with me. And Miss Jackson was this amazing woman. And I did that throughout high school and I graduated high school seventh in my high school class of 200 students. I was number seven, right? I was in the top 10 of That's my amazing. So, and I look at that as those women, they did that for me. And I have such deep gratitude for that. 
that to this day, I remember it and I just want to pour into someone else like they have poured into me. Yeah. How could you not? I mean, that's so I, uh, I, I taught at the college level for two years. This is going to be nothing compared to what you just said, but I, I need to say this because it, it'll leave somewhere. I promise. Um, and in every class that I taught, I got to say out of 30, maybe one, maybe two really made it worthwhile. And there was a hefty middle that could take it or leave it. It wasn't very fulfilling for me. Maybe they got something out of it. And then there was a larger group uh, compared to the top that made it really tough to want to do it. Mm. And I think that's something that a lot of our instructors are facing right now. Um, yeah. You know, where it's people like you who are hungry for it and who, who are willing to do the work make, I, I think it's really what keeps a lot of instructors going. It's always yeah. that one or that two people that are like, these are the ones. And, and, I actually follow those people to this day and what they're doing in their careers. And it makes me happy, not selfishly, but I'm like, they really went as far as I thought they would. You could tell mm -hmm. they put in the work and then on to reading. I think it's, it's a disservice that we do in this country right now is people just don't read, No, you know? And, no. and once you can read, like you said, confidence, but your world is opened up to centuries of information Absolutely. and ideas and failures and successes yeah. and yeah. your the world becomes larger than the actual geographic world yeah you know yeah. um Absolutely. and so it's amazing to hear that how that unlocked your life and uh what you do um and you, you know, know now you know the biggest thing i did during the pandemic when there was no ppp and my staff you know was forced to stay home I took all my savings and I paid them for about a whole month. Um, we opened our doors and we fed people in the community. And we did, we give away 10,000 pancakes. <laughs> opened the door to kids that was out of school between 11 and two, they could come and get free lunch because I knew I was that kid that needed school lunch growing up. And I knew what that meant to me, right? Yep. And every year we gave away free turkey. Every year we closed down the restaurant and we do a week long of giving because I believe that we as a community have to take care of each other. And not just that, I think that people are struggling. Yeah. And when you have the opportunity to give, just do it. It come back to you tenfold, right? That's right. And I've always lived my life very simply. Like, I don't want much. I'm not a flashy person, you know. Uh, all I need is a movable car. I don't have to be, you know. And I live my life in a way that I want to be able to have impact in people's lives in a way that's meaningful to them. So that's just a journey that I'm on and I want to continue to be on. And... God just have blessed me with this platform. But I tell you, it's not easy. It's, it's, you know, like, you know, the other day I was talking to someone that was interviewing me and said, you do so much, how are you able to? I said to that person, I said, it's never been even a question in my mind. Yeah. It's just something you do. <laughs> it's just something yeah. you do. 
So for me, there you have it. But it's, it's, it's not easy. The journey, I want to do more. I do. I do. And yeah. I'm going to continue to do more. I think Audrey Hepburn said, um, I might be misquoting this uh, and misassigning it, but uh, she said, you have two hands. One is for helping yourself and the other one's for helping others. Yes. Yes. You know, and I think it's yes. a really good quote to remember because it's important. There are a lot of people out there that think that both should be helping others. Yes. And I'm a big proponent of a strong Adina is makes a stronger community. So if That's Adina right. weakens, the community weakens. And so you have to help yourself and that allows you to help others. That's right. It's um, like when you get an airplane, it's a, in time of turbulence, put your seatbelt on, then worry about your child next to you, right? right. Because you have to be secure to kind of protect your child. It's the same right. concept here. It's the same concept. And I think if I can be more successful, the more I can give back, the more yeah. I will do, right? So how how do I become successful? Community. And the community have rowdy around me. The community have poured into me. You know, we just came off of making history last week, you know? And I became the first African-American woman in the state of New Jersey to ever be awarded the 9% low-income housing tax credit. Oh, wow. And people are, it's such a big deal because if you're in real um, affordable housing development, that is like the pinnacle of development. That's kind of partnering up with the government that allows you to build sustainable, affordable housing for, for you know, middle income, low income family. These are not poor people. These are working families. Right. So this would be the first time, this was the first time an African-American woman was awarded such an honor. And I, that happened because the community rallied behind me. The it's community amazing. wrote letters of support. You know, the mayor, the lieutenant governor, the BA, all of these people. It was like, if you want something, I don't know if you ever read this book called The Alchemist. Of course. Yes, yep. the alchemist says, if you want something very badly, the universe conspires for you to have it. Mm -hmm. You just have to want it bad and not give up because the universe is going to test you to see how badly you want it. That's right. And so long as you don't give up, it's going to let you have it. Yep. Yeah, because it is the hard work. You, you mentioned earlier the, the word luck. I think it's the most demeaning word that we have out there, you know? Um, Facts. And it, you know, and I forget who said it. Like, I, I think maybe the Dwayne The Rock Johnson repeated it, or it's been repeated by many people, so I don't know the attribution off the top of my head, but it's like, the funny thing about luck is the harder I work, the more I get, you know, the more luck I get, yes. you know? And it's like, yes. so it is very much in line with The Alchemist, which is a great... Um, short novella it's totally worth reading um in my opinion uh, I, th I think it's great um it's up there with the prince i think the prince is a fantastic uh, novella to read as well um so we we've talked about a lot of your um accomplishments across the board let's kind of go back in time a little bit too so your, your first job in the food service industry was working at mcdonald's as a teenager yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people not in the food industry, they hear the word McDonald's and there's a sort of sort of turning of the nose. And and I think you know, there, there's many reasons probably why a lot of it has to do with health and and, and the quality of the food and things like that. Uh, a stigma around, um, you know, healthy eating or, and that kind of food and the, its role in obesity. The list goes on. However, I am a big defender of McDonald's because mm-hmm. it is a fantastic system in a lot of ways. We know there's some issues right now that are coming out. Um, but in general, you could start there with no skills. No skill. And you could make six figures relatively quickly in the general scheme of things if you just work hard and you you show the initiative to get into management, get into general management, and then regional. Like McDonald's has taken a lot of people out of the proverbial gutter and got them on their feet. And so I got to love McDonald's in a lot of ways. So you started there. What did you learn from McDonald's? Um, and McDonald's did not sponsor this podcast, by the way, nor do I work for them. Um, what did you get from that experience that helped, one, you fall in love with food service, apparently, because you you went on to build this, uh, this empire. Um, but what other lessons did you take away? Customers. In McDonald's, one of the amazing things about McDonald's is that it's that place that you get the whole gamut. You get the soccer mom running in with her kids. You get the homeless guy that just got 99 cents. Now he want to get his double cheeseburger. You get the executive that his daughter have conned him into picking up a Happy Meal on the way home. So you get the whole gamut. And what that taught me was in McDonald's, when it said the customer is always right, at my McDonald's, that was something that we totally practiced. So we used to have this homeless guy, and he used to come in all the time. He used to eat his burger all the way to, like, the last bite. And then he'll come, and he'll be like, oh, I just found hair in this piece. And we used to look at him, and I'll call the manager, and she'll come, and she'll comp it, and she'll bring up another one. And it'll go on and on every day, every week, at least twice a week he was doing it. So there was a running joke in there that says, if he come, just give him two. Yeah. <laughs> because you know he's going to be right back. <laughs> yep. Yep. I learned that principle from a very early age that the customer was always right. You never engage. You never argue with the customer. That was a big no-no. It didn't matter how ratchet the customer came in there behaving. <laughs> you just stood there and said, thank you, you know. So I learned very early on from McDonald's that customers always right. And then also another thing that I learned from McDonald's was systems. McDonald's is a big system place. There is a system for everything. I, I, I went on a grill. I was in drive-thru. I was on pickup window. I was cashier. And every step of the way, there was a process and there was a, a, a way that things needed to be done. So that sort of got ingrained in me because I work at McDonald's all throughout high school, mm-hmm. almost like my last year and when I got a better paying job at the mall and I left them. But that was it. It was systems and the customer was always right. And if someone wasn't following the system, it collapsed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Backed up, it collapsed somewhere. So I knew when I started my businesses, I wanted to implement systems that everything had to have a system. 
And if we didn't have a system, the customer would be impacted, it would collapse. So now my restaurant that I built cornbread farm to sow, everything have a system. And if it doesn't have a system, we're in the process of building that system. So it's been very, very, um, in like very, very good kind of seeing how so early on, some of those principles and some of those things still live with me today. Yeah. I mean, I think movies like, um, the story of, uh, Ray Kroc and all that yeah. really started to show like the difference between, um, a restaurant and a strong multi-unit and the difference between people who knew how to run a restaurant mm -hmm. and a person who knew how to grow a restaurant again, yeah. rather predatory in a lot of ways, but in some ways not like it's easy to look back uh, through the lens of what we know today and cast, you know, doubt or negativity on things that have been done in the past. Um, again, we're, we're more knowledgeable today, but back then, I mean, franchising was a way for families to get out of the rat race, own their own business and succeed. And there are it's a lot of stories like that. It still is today. And I think when you ask, how do I plan on growing? Like my concept is true franchising. I think yep. franchising is allowing someone to kind of come into a system that's already been tested out and join that partnership. I this, I started into I started into the restaurant space through franchising. My first store right. was IHOP. I um franchise it. I bought a franchise and I think at the time I was the youngest woman franchise in the whole Northeast. And so I was 27 able, years old, right? 27 years old. And I was able to be successful because one thing I remember and it still stay with me today is that if you are persistent, you will get it. And if you are consistent, you will keep it, right? So every morning I remind myself, be persistent. Never take no. Be persistent in your pursuit of accomplishing your goal. One person may say no, that's fine. Nothing lost, move on to the next person. Don't take it personal. Don't you know, don't hold no malice in your heart and stay consistent, consistent with your work ethics, right? So I think if you are coming to the franchising system with that mentality, you will be successful. Mm -hmm. And we see it in a lot of communities too. Um, yes. You know, the communities that are built on work ethic and um, consistency. So they're, they're usually immigrant communities. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, you can go down the list uh, of all the Asian countries and they are the ones that end up being fantastic operators more often than not. Now, of course, blanket yeah. statement, you can poke holes in it, but it's because it is consistent. It's persistent. They follow the, the, uh, the book as it were. And what, as a know, result, they succeed. Yeah. You know, and during the pandemic, that's something that I, I made sure to uh, at least tell the, the folks that I speak to and, and that I interact with, cause it'd be like, you know, support local. I was like, absolutely. Also understand that the franchise, like the McDonald's down the street or, you know, this concept or that concept is local. It's owned by a local family yep. and they hire local people. And yep. so support them too. Um, yeah. cause they are a part of it. Cause people forget, they see the logo, they see the brand and it loses a lot of the humanity on the ground 
Um, IHOP has been fantastic for you as a system. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get into an ad for IHOP, but what what drew you to IHOP? Was it just a love for pancakes, or was there something about the system? Um, and then, how has that experience been for you? I think IHOP and I is just purely a love story. I love IHOP pancakes. I think they have some of the best pancake in the world. Hands down. I've been around the country. I've been around the world. And I haven't I've been to my kitchen. I'm going to have to make that happen. I'm going to have to make that happen. Yeah. Come to Atlanta. I'll cook you pancakes. Okay. I, you know, a couple of people have invited me to Atlanta. And um, when I was in college, I love uh, I love IHOP. And I would frequent it every day. Every time I was on a date, a late date, you know, we were at IHOP. It was just my spot. And when I left college, I wanted to bring that in my community. And it was just so difficult. And, you know, what I really opened my eyes to is that these communities that are blighted, they are blighted because people have stopped investing in them. I remember when I was going after my IHOP and I would tell people I want to open this IHOP in Irvington, they, they would give me all of the excuses in the world. But what they weren't saying was that we're not doing it because it's predominantly black and it's poor people and we don't believe it'll be successful. Right. So it was like these communities are not blighted because of lack of talent. They're blighted because lack of investment. A whole group of industry have decided that they are not going to invest in this community unless someone that look like them separate from this community come in and save it. Mm-hmm. And it took seven banks saying no to me, seven banks saying no to me. They were not finance me. And I kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and often time. And guess what? I'm going through the same thing right now with my concept cornbread. You will figure I've been in the restaurant industry for 15 years, 17 years, really. And I'm trying to raise money to kind of build my next 10 stores. And when I sit across investors and I tell them about the concept, what we do, we are authentically soul food restaurant, unapologetically. We're bringing you mac and cheese, candy yams, collard greens, fried chicken, baked chicken, barbecue rib, all of your grandma's favorites, mind you. And they'll look at me and be like, yes, we think, we, you know, we like those food. You know, can it be accepted mainstream? And I'm like, yes. I have three stores, one in Brooklyn, one in Maple, one in Newark. We're killing it. I mean, we are killing it. And you'll be surprised, Joseph, how much I am going through right now to raise money to build 10 stores that are not are going to be the most successful stores in bringing soul food in the mainstream, right? Hmm. And what they don't say is that I would do it but the person that's sitting in front of me is not familiar to me. Mm. So when these banks were saying no to me, this 25-year-old girl that was asking them for $2.5 million to open an IHOP, they weren't familiar with me. I didn't exist in their mind. Right. They have never seen me before. So what I was asking them was foreign. 
Like, they're like, we've never done this before. No one have done it before. Literally, Joseph, it took an act of God for me to get that first IHOP franchise. Hmm. And it took someone in IHOP, after me having my franchise for almost two years, call me and say, Dina, what's going on? When are you going to open your store? And I lost it. I broke down crying. And I said to her, Nicole, no one is lending to me. Everyone is saying no to me. And she said to me, what do you mean? You are an approved AHA franchise. This is a brand that is, I think at the time was like 45 years old. Right. And she was so disgusted by it. And I remember she said to me, stay by the phone. Let me make some phone calls. She called GE Franchise Financing in Arizona. I'm in New Jersey, and she's calling a bank in Arizona and telling them, if you guys want to do business with us, like you have been harassing me to do, there's a franchisee in Jersey that we believe in. And if you can pull this deal, we will do business with you, and we know you are the kind of partner we want to partner with. Oh, I got chills. I love that. I love that. And that's how the deal got financed. That's amazing. That's that's what you want to see in the world is people with power use it that's right. to 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 push others who are reluctant. I mean, look, banks are risk averse. They're the most risk. It's we want them to be risk averse, right? Like yeah. you don't want to invest a bank that is frivolous with their money. Yeah. But when all the numbers are there, you know, and it's fantastic you got that final push. And I think a year later, a year and a half later. That IHOP was the highest grossing IHOP in the Northeast. Like we killed it because I said, I'm coming in here as the underdog. That's right. You guys didn't believe in me and I'm coming. I'm going to show you, you're going to eat your face. I am going to do well. I'm going to make sure this company is ran the way I said it will be. And it was, was it difficult? Absolutely. But I was persistent and consistent in my pursuit of success. And I made sure everyone around me realized what the stakes were. The stakes were high. No one believed this is possible. We're here as underdog. I kind of took the Steve Jobs model. You know, Steve Jobs, he believed in betraying himself as this underdog. Mm -hmm. And everything became, if you come for him, you're coming for him because he's the underdog. If you ever read the autobiography of Steve Jobs, you should. It's a good read. I love and it. And my whole team just kind of knew we were the underdog, and we had our marching orders. Yeah, you had a shared vision. You had passion behind it, and you stuck to it. It's amazing. That's right. I mean, it's like, it's. I hate to say it's out of a textbook, but it really is. And what I have found is a lot of people may like know it upstairs, that that's what you should do, but they don't have it. In their yeah. heart to actually the guts, the heart, the viscera, like to actually do it every day, wake up and do it. Um, which and is amazing. Entrepreneurs, we are led by our hearts. Oftentimes I, I, I really make decisions with my head. I have this gut feeling. I am led by my gut and women. We have this. We just don't tap into it. Yeah. We just don't tap into it. And when I tell you we have it, we have it in a way that 
If you listen to it, it can save you a lot of headache and it can save you a lot of problems later. Yeah. I'm sure if my wife were standing right next to me, she'd be like backing you up and looking at me because I don't always listen to her, but I probably should. Yes, um, you have a strong intuition. And whenever I have not listened to that hunch, it caused me problems later. Yeah. yeah. And I have this thing when I meet people, when I'm talking to you, either my body tense up and I get this like back pain, that means there's something that is not jiving and my body is rejecting you. Or if it's like now we're talking and I feel like I'm talking to like an old high school friend and we just chilling and we just talking, I just be like, damn, I like this feeling. I like this. And because your body is sending you signal all the time. We're just so numb that we don't listen to those anymore. We're just well, not yeah. talking we to it. We've convinced ourselves that we're above our animal nature in some ways. In some ways we are, which, you know, it's how we, you know, develop tools and, you know, evolved, but the animal instincts are still there. And I think in some cases we really do still need to listen to them. Um, so this, I wish we could actually talk for much longer, but, um, we'll have to do a second episode. You have to commit to that. Of course you, Um, (laughs) but for now we like to end these, uh, with probably the most important question of all, which is if you had one final meal, what would you eat? Where would you eat it? Why? If I had one final meal, I would eat oatmeal with lots of almond butter and a lots of chopped up cashews. And um, and I would have a black eyed pea burger from Urban Vegan, which is my mm. vegan restaurant. Yeah, and we'll have links to Urban Vegan and Cornbread, uh, as well as uh, some of those books that we've mentioned so far. That sounds like a delicious meal. And um, just thank you so much for being so uh, open with your time and your story, which this this is going to kick off 2023 the right way for hopefully a lot of people. Let's kill it. 2023, we're coming for you. That's right. We're coming, and we're not coming nice. We're going to kill it in 2023. Absolutely. It is going to be all of our years for those of us who work hard and are determined and persistent and consistent and, you know, lead with our heart. So uh, I love it so much, Adina. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. If you love what we served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC. All rights reserved.